Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you again for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us prophecies of the Bible to warn us of what is to come. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to just continue to follow the truth that you've given, Lord, and to not be deceived in these last days. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 When Saddam Hussein was president of Iraq, he had this idea that he wanted to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. He wanted to build his palace directly on top of the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's ancient palace. The city of Babylon is about 60 miles southwest of the city of Baghdad in modern Iraq. And like Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein wanted to put his name imprinted on the bricks that would go in this rebuilt city, um, in the rebuilding of Babylon. But what Saddam Hussein didn't realize is that he was attempting the impossible. But you would not think that it would be impossible for him, because certainly money was no problem for him. Uh, he didn't have an enemy that was trying to keep him from building uh, this city. Geographically, this was no challenge. It was right there in his own backyard. But he was attempting the impossible, because the prophet Jeremiah had written this in about the year 600 B.C. Jeremiah said this, For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. So Jeremiah was writing about Babylon, saying that Babylon will never be rebuilt again. It won't be inhabited People will flee, and they won't come back. Ten verses later, in Jeremiah 50, verse 13, Jeremiah writes this. He says, She, that is Babylon, shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. And were you to visit Iraq today, and go to the ruins of ancient Babylon, you would see that this prophecy has held true to this very day. Ancient Babylon was a mighty kingdom that conquered Israel. And took many of God's people captive. We, we saw that he took Daniel and his young friends captive from Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Yet even though Babylon was destroyed, you read in the book of Revelation that Babylon is going to come back again. Now how do we understand that? Jeremiah says that it can't happen, but Revelation says that there's an end time Babylon. We read in Revelation 14, 8, and another angel Followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it seems in Revelation 14 that Revelation that, that Babylon is back. How can that be so? Remember that John used the Old Testament scriptures as the foundation upon which he wrote the book of Revelation. So he used the term, the word Babylon in Revelation, his readers would have recognized that term. They would have understood what John was saying because they knew all about ancient Babylon from the Old Testament. And in the Bible, we read about the fall of ancient Babylon. And it's important for us to understand that today. So let's look at it here tonight. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. The background is this. Tensions were high between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonians, and it came to a head one night. As the Babylonian king, uh, Belshazzar, was hosting a party there in his palace, let's look at what Daniel 5 says. 
Daniel 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Belshazzar, the king, made a feast, a great feast, for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He killed a lot of people. And then he took some of the best and the brightest young people back with him to Babylon. And he also took many valuables with him, including uh, the holy worship vessels that were sacred to God. And they were used in the worship of the true God of heaven. Notice it says that he took these gold and silver vessels so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Amen. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of what? Of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Friends, this is blasphemous. It continues, it says, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. The Bible continues, it says that he was so terrified that his knees knocked together. Think about this for a moment. This is the most powerful man in the then known world and he is absolutely terrified by this handwriting on the wall. So let's recap here. There were holy vessels that were used in worship, designed to be used in the worship of the true God of heaven, and they were taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's grandson took those holy vessels, and he used them in a profane way. And when he did that, God said, enough is enough. And the, writing, the handwriting was on the wall for Belshazzar. But no one at the party could understand the handwriting that was there on the wall. So the king's mother said, there's someone here who will be able to do so. And she remembered Daniel and how he had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And so Daniel was called. And that's an important thing to know, friends. Daniel was not there at that party. Amen? Right. Daniel was a faith, he was faithful to God. And he would not partake of this debauchery that took place in these kinds of parties. He would not intoxicate himself with the wine which the king drank, the Bible says. Amen. And so Daniel was called to worship, Daniel was called to interpret the dream here in Daniel chapter 5. And this is what he said, starting in verse 18. He said, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then verse 21 says, then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass, with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, 
and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. He was very aware of the situation. He knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. So God said, Belshazzar, I cannot hold you guiltless. He knew what he had done. He knew that these vessels were holy. And he would have no doubt known Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story as well. The book of Daniel is a prophetic book. We've looked at many of the prophecies. But it's also a book about salvation. Because the last person on earth that you would expect to be saved was the leader of the then known world, King Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel talks about a God that loves people so much that he would pursue a scoundrel even like King Nebuchadnezzar and led him to the point in his life where he would be saved. Praise God, friends. Belshazzar was familiar with all of this, but he would not humble his heart. And the handwriting was on the wall. Here's what the writing said in Daniel chapter 5, verse 25. It says, Mini, mini, tekel, upharsin. Then he said, This is the interpretation of each word, mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. He was judged, and he didn't end up on the right side of this judgment. Then Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So in other words, Belshazzar, it is over for you, and it is over for your kingdom. You're done with. Then the Bible says in Daniel 5.30, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So here we see that Babylon had fallen. And what was the cause of the downfall of Babylon? Well, they took the holy vessels of God, those that they knew were used in the worship of the true God of heaven, and they used them for common purposes. And as literal Babylon fell, so spiritual Babylon has fallen. When we come to the book of Revelation, we see a clear parallel here. So let's go first to Revelation chapter 14, to a very familiar passage for us. Revelation 14, 7 says that an angel speaks, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So here we see that call again to worship the Creator, the one who made. Then it continues in verse 7. Actually, it talks right there. It's a reminder right here in verse 7 that God is the one that made us. He is our Creator God, and what is... What is the memorial of his creation? The Sabbath, Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is that memorial. It's a call right here in Revelation 14, 7 to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. And as a matter of fact, um, Revelation 14, 7 is basically a direct quote from the fourth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Look at it here on the screen. Verse 7 says, Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea. And then Exodus 20, verse 11, the fourth commandment says, The Lord made the heavens 
and the earth and the sea and the springs of water, right there. So when anyone, when anyone says, well, I don't see the fourth commandment in, anywhere in the New Testament, well, friends, that's, that's, not, that's not true. Here's, it's basically quoted directly right there as a part of God's final message to the world. Friends, God wants us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This message is a message that goes to everyone on planet Earth at the end of time. Everyone will eventually hear the three angels' messages that we've been learning about in our series thus far. And just like Belshazzar knew that the, those vessels were holy, the world will know that God's Sabbath is holy. Amen. And when the people have had an opportunity to hear this and understand it, then the message will be that Babylon has fallen. Now I'd like to introduce you to two women in the book of Revelation. God draws a fascinating parallel between these two women. The first one is seen in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now notice what a woman represents in Bible prophecy. Through the words of uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this. He said, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. He said in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2. So who is Zion? Well, we should compare scripture with scripture, right? If we don't know the answer, we should compare it and look and see if any other scriptures shed light on that. So let's look at this. Um, through Isaiah, God said, Say to Zion, you are my people. Isaiah 51 16. So as we can see here from these texts, we see that God used a virtuous woman to represent his true people, Amen. his true church. The Apostle Paul also uses the same terminology to describe the Corinthian church. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Christ. Amen. So here the Apostle Paul presents the church as Christ's bride. So in Bible prophecy, a woman symbolically represents a church. In Revelation chapter 12, it is a pure church, a pure woman. And we'll look more at her in our next presentation tomorrow morning. But then there is a second woman. And this woman appears in Revelation chapter 17. And she is anything but pure, the Bible says. Let's start in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with what? the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, who is this harlot woman? 
Well, Daniel spoke about the little horn power. Do you remember that? The little horn power that casts truth to the ground, as it says in Daniel 8, verse 12. That's who this woman is. It's the same power who persecuted God's church during the Dark Ages. And uh, virtually all of the Protestant reformers believe that this harlot woman referred to the Roman Catholic papacy. This power was a persecuting power. It was, the Bible says, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The Roman church persecuted any and all who opposed its teachings, thinking that they were actually doing God a service. We've looked at that extensively already in our series. This woman is an impure church system, which was corrupted during the Dark Ages, during that time of compromise. And she's called Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, where did this word Babylon come from? Well, it came from the Tower of Babel back in the Old Testament. And we know what happened at the Tower of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And they were building something that would reach to heaven in defiance against the God of heaven. And so God confused the languages at Babel. Now, the word Babylon comes from the word Babel, which means confusion. It means confusion. And so, in Babylon, at the end of time, we see that there is great spiritual confusion. This isn't a literal nation that's going to rise up at the end of time. Uh, in Revelation 14 and 18, this is something spiritual that is taking place here, friends. And I think it is clear that much of the Christian world is in confusion when it comes to the Word of God, especially on some of the key subjects that are vitally important for these last days. Let's consider Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. It tells us that Babylon made the world drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, in prophecy, wine represents false doctrine. And it's the false doctrines of Babylon that have confused the world and made this world drunk with its teachings on teachings that didn't originate in the Bible, teachings that came from paganism, as we have seen. And through these false teachings, Satan is doing all that he can to lead sincere people away from the truth of God's word. Now in verse 5, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. Now if she's a mother, that means what? It means that she has offspring, right? And uh, she has daughters. Remember that in prophecy, a woman represents a church. And these daughters are other churches or daughter churches. There's the mother church whose colors are purple and scarlet, as we see the Roman Catholic Church, that is their official colors. And then there are daughter churches. Let's consider some of the teachings that come from the mother church, and that have made their way throughout Christianity. And as we do, we will see that many of the teachings came from ancient Babylon. They're um, teachings that came from paganism, really. We've seen already in our series that billions believe in this doctrine of the immortal soul, and that when you die, your soul lives on forever and ever. But we have seen that this idea came straight from paganism, and it actually came all the way back from the lie that the devil told back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, Satan told Eve, you will not surely die. And so ancient Babylon adopted this, uh, idea of the immortality of the, stroll, uh, of the soul straight from the devil's playbook. And, and Babylon was the influential power that, that spread this idea during the Old Testament. Look at what the Bible says here in Ezekiel 8, verse 13. And it says, And he said to me, Turn again, 
and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gates of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for who? Tammuz. Now who is Tammuz? She would be the god of vegetation. The, Babylon the Babylonians believed that when winter darkened the sky, and that there were long nights, Tammuz had died. But in the spring there would be a resurrection, and, and some of God's people, the Jews, accepted this false idea from Babylon. That's why Ezekiel describes God's people as weeping for Tammuz. This, this false idea that the dead live on, and that the soul is immortal, slipped into the Old Testament church directly from paganism. But the Bible is abundantly clear on this, friends. Look at Ezekiel or Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. It says, The living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. 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 Psalm 115, verse 17 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. So why do the dead not praise the Lord? They're dead. Because they're dead. They're simply resting <laughs> in the grave, right? Awaiting the second coming of Jesus. They're waiting for either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of condemnation. That's what Jesus believed in, friends. That's what the apostles in the early church believed. And that's why throughout the Bible we see that death was mentioned as a sleep over 50 times. Look at what Justin Martyr said. He's one of the early church fathers uh, in the first century. He says... If, or in the second century, if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this, that is the truth of the resurrection, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who say that there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. Listen to what Protestant preacher Amos, Amos Phelps said over a hundred years ago. He agreed with this. He said, This doctrine of the immortal soul can be traced through the muddy channels of a corrupted Christianity, a perverted Judaism, a pagan philosophy, a superstitious idolatry, to the great instigator of mischief in the Garden of Eden. Mm. The Protestants barred it from who? From the Catholics. The Catholics got it from who? Pharisees. The Pharisees. The Pharisees got it from Pagan. the pagans. And the pagans got it from devil. the old serpent, the devil, who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly bowels of paradise to an audience that was all too willing to hear and heed the new and fascinating theology. You shall not surely die. Wow. So you see where it came from, right? came from the lie of the devil back in the garden. This is one of the false doctrines that came into the church and continues to be taught by the mother church as well as her many daughters. There is confusion on this topic, friends. Some people even pray to the dead. Some people, some churches even baptize for the dead. But friends, there doesn't have to be this kind of confusion in the Christian church if people would simply read God's word, amen? amen. And study it closely. Ancient Babylon was also the center for sun worship. All sun worship came through varying pagan, pagan channels. Uh, let's uh, look here at a fascinating passage of Scripture which helps us to see how sun worship actually came into God's Old Testament church. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16. The Bible says, So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 
25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping what? The sun. The sun toward the east. What were they supposed to be there doing? Worshiping God, right? Worshiping the true God of heaven there at the temple. But here their backs are not facing towards the temple. They're facing towards the sun. Sadly, the Jews were influenced by the pagan communities around them. And many turned to idols and many turned to sun worship even. And that's how sun worship crept into the Old Testament church. James Fraser describes how impeded sun worship was in the Babylonian culture. He said this, In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. In other words, sun worship went way, way back. There was basically never a time that they never that they didn't worship the sun. And sadly, sun worship crept in the Christian church, as we've mentioned. Dr. Alexander Hislop says, to conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated, that is, joined together, and to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in what? Idolatry in this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. So Christianity and paganism shook hands, and Sunday became the vehicle to unite paganism and Christianity together. Our Catholic friends wrote about it in this way. In our Sunday visitor, January 4, 1931, uh, says, Christendom, that is, all Christians, are indebted to the Catholic Church for the institution of Sunday as the Sabbath day. So there they admit that all of their daughter churches are indebted to them, the mother church, for the institution of Sunday as the Sabbath day. Here's what uh, another Catholic says, Catholic apologist Carl Keating. He says this in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, on page 38. He says, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or the Day of Rest, was of course, which day? Saturday. Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, I'm not intending to be critical here, friends. This is simply a matter of, of historical record, though. Um, it, was a, it was the church that brought this into Christianity, not Jesus. Not the disciples, it wasn't the apostles, but it was the Church of Rome. Amen. In fact, Cardinal Gibbons wrote this. He said, Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping of holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. So the Cardinal basically said, you're either going to be a Protestant and you'll observe the Seventh-day Sabbath, or... Basically, you'll be Catholic and you'll observe Sunday. The choice is either between the Bible or tradition. The Bible or church councils. So the teaching that Sunday has somehow replaced the Sabbath of God is a teaching that comes from Babylon. And the churches are teaching this error in great measure. Together with the mother church, and they constitute what the Bible calls the end time Babylon. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, we see God saying this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
But then we see in the last days that the whole world will be wondering after the beast power, will be wondering after the papacy. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says, And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Look at, one how, look, look at how one Catholic priest described the world following after the mother church. He wrote this, he said, But since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course it is inconsistent, but the change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. They have continued to observe the custom even though it rests upon the authority of the church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains the reminder of the mother church from which all non-Catholic sects broke away. Like a boy running from his mother but still carrying in his po pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. So that was from a Catholic priest by the name of John O'Brien. The same author wrote this about transubstantiation and the Eucharist, which the Catholic Church practices. He said, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim, Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was a human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal, omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Oh. I haven't heard that. Wow. Now, I don't know how to explain that, friends, other than saying that it is absolute blasphemy. It is absolute blasphemy. That, but that's the claim that is being made by the Mother Church, who desires all people to follow its teachings. But, friends, God's plan is to call his people out of Babylon, out of spiritual confusion, and he has done it once before. In ancient times, God's people were taken captive by Babylon. They spent many years down in Babylon, but God did not want them to stay there forever. His plan was to call them out, and so that they would be free to worship God in spirit and in truth. His plan Amen. was to call them out so they could come back home to where God wanted them to be so that they could be safe, so that they could be growing in the grace of God and leaning on the Word of God. God wanted to call them out of Babylon so that they would not have to stay surrounded by the pagan influences and the unscriptural ideas that they were facing. So God called them out of ancient Babylon, and many of his people came out of Babylon. It would have been madness for them to stay there because it really wasn't a safe place for them to grow spiritually. Did they have friends in Babylon? Yes, I'm sure they did. Did they worship there in Babylon? I'm sure they did. What about their livelihood? Yes, I'm sure it was all there in Babylon. There were reasons enough for them to decide that they might want to stay there in Babylon. But it wasn't, it wasn't God's will for them to stay. And it wasn't safe for them to stay spiritually, and so God called them out 
of ancient Babylon. But unfortunately, not everyone came out. Some decided that they would stay in Babylon. And it's hard to believe that they would decide to stay in Babylon when God had provided a way for them to come out. But the Bible tells us that the same thing is going to happen at the end of time. There's a call made in Revelation 14.8 that says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. And so God calls to his people in these last days and he calls them to come out of Babylon. Now I want to show you right now from a biblical point of view why it is not safe to remain in Babylon. And I understand that sometimes uh, it can be difficult to confront subjects like this, but I also know that God is able to grow us as people, amen, and as Christians, and he wants to lead us to where he wants us to be. Let's amen. look at what it says in Revelation 18.1. It says, After these things, I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of what? Demons. Demons. Does that sound like a good place to be, friends? No. No, it does not. A dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Friends, Babylon is fallen because it has drifted away from the word of God. Instead of, instead of, instead of following God's word, they're following the traditions of men. Bible continues, it says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. That's really strong, strong language, isn't it, friends? The Bible uses some pretty strong language. But God is telling us here that it is dangerous to stay in Babylon. But notice what he says in verse 4. This gives me hope. It says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. So friends, God has people in Babylon, doesn't he? He has people in Babylon and he's calling them out because he doesn't want them to receive of Babylon's plagues. Amen. Now, does this mean that God has people tonight in the churches that he calls Babylon? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. I think the overwhelming majority of God's people are still in Babylon. But he says to those honest seekers of truth, he says, My people, come out. Follow me. Follow my word. Follow my truth. I want to grow you, so come out of her, my people. He says to his people, You love me. You're doing well. That's great. Now I want, you to, I want to get you ready for eternity. Because when Jesus comes back, the saved will be those who have been keeping the commandments of God. When Jesus comes back, the saved will be those who are not confused by the false teachings of man. So God's people will hear his voice, and they will move forward in faith with him. They'll grow in their relationship with God, and they'll develop in their understanding and in their practice of the teachings of the Bible. Now what happens is, is that there are people who say, well, I see what the Bible says, I see where maybe I don't understand all the things like I would like to, and I can see where my church falls short, um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay here in my church and I'm going to reform my church. I will change my church from the inside out. And friends, that is a noble thought. It is a noble thought that you can reform a church, but that is not what God 
asks you to do. God asks you to come out of a fallen system of worship. Should you witness to your friends? Amen. Absolutely you should. That's why God gave us the Great Commission. God wants to use us to present, to, to, to give present truth to those uh, that are close to us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers. He wants us to share the truth. But the powerful example in these last days is stepping forward in faith and growing in the grace of God, Amen. standing on the platform of His Word. Amen. There's no power in an example that says, well, I know better, but I'm not going to do anything about it. There's no testimony in that, friends. There is no witness to that. You can't reform a church that has refused to be reformed already. Even Jesus couldn't change his church, the church of his day. So God calls us and he says, come out of her, my people. Notice it's God who says this, not me. I'm just a feeble vessel trying to relay the message that God has given in his word. What we know for sure is this. The fact that many of God's people haven't known certain things doesn't mean that they're not God's people. You can't look at somebody in another church and say, well, that person believes differently from me, so they are less of a Christian than me. If, in fact, friends, if you think that way, you're probably demonstrated that the opposite is true. There's no hierarchy in God's church. There should be no one saying, well, I'm better than you because I keep the Bible Sabbath, and you're lesser than me because you don't. That is absolutely not right, friends. Many people just didn't know about the seventh-day Sabbath. They just didn't know or they just didn't fully understand the truth of it. Many people didn't know that the dead are simply sleeping in the grave or that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Many didn't know that we are living in the judgment hour and that we need to fear God and give glory to Him with with our lifestyle. But friends, now we know. Now we know, and we know that God has a great plan for us in these last days. And he says, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Don't receive of her plagues. Don't transgress when it comes to the commandments of God. Don't follow the beast power in these last days. Don't receive the mark of the beast. It's God's message to us, friends, because we are his people. The decision you make to stand on the Word of God alone is the best decision that you can ever make, friends. There is no better decision than to make that decision to follow Christ completely. And I want to encourage you as you take steps forward with God to, to, to stand on His Word. And friends, don't look back. Don't take steps backwards. In the Bible, God called a man by the name of Lot. And He called him out of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 19 when you get home. God said to him, Lot, get your family out of these wicked cities and don't look back. But unfortunately, Mrs. Lot looked back. And she turned into a pillar of salt, the Bible says. Friends, you don't want to make the same mistake in these last days. You don't want to leave your heart where God is calling you from. He's calling us out of Babylon. We don't want our heart to still be there in Babylon. One day, on Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah proposed a certain test. There was a question that had to be resolved. Whose God was the true God? The prophets of Baal believed that it was Baal, but Elijah believed that it was the true God of heaven, the creator of God. And so he proposed a test 
to the prophets of Baal. He said, set up an altar, offer a sacrifice, and pray to your God. And the God who answers by fire, he is the true God. And he said, once you're done, it will be my turn. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. So the prophets of Baal agreed to this. They erected an altar, they sacrificed an animal, and they put the wood around the altar. They cried out to Baal over and over again. They cried out until they were hoarse. They, they cut themselves even so that the blood ran in an attempt to appease their God, in an attempt to convince their God to send fire from heaven. But friends, the fire didn't come. Then Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been broken down, and he prayed, and he prayed, and God answered that prayer. The fire came down from God out of heaven, and it evaporated the water, it burned up the sacrifice, and it even burned up the stones. And the God of heaven, God of heaven demonstrated that he is indeed the true God. So what happened next? Well, Elijah gathered all the people together, and he spoke to them and he said these words. He said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And what we hear tonight is like Elijah's message on the top of Mount Carmel. How long will we falter between two opinions? How long will we flip-flop between serving God and serving tradition? If God is God, then let's purpose to serve and honor God. Amen? And worship him in spirit and in truth. But if God is, if the God of heaven is not the true God, then why play the game? Why bother with it, right? If Baal is God, then let's just embrace Baal and not pretend that there's another way of doing things. Amen. If God is God, then we should follow the teachings of God found in his, his word, right? God. If tradition is the way to God, then let's just admit that we're following tradition. How long will we falter between two opinions? You see, in Elijah's day, people hadn't forsaken the worship of God altogether. They had succeeded in mixing truth with error. King Ahab, Jezebel's wicked wife, um, introduced Baal worship. First into the royal household, then it started to creep down and mix up among the Jewish society. So these people would tell you that there, they, they wouldn't tell you that there is no God, but they were mixing together the worship of the true God and the worship of Baal. And there was a blend that had taken place. And perhaps that is what has happened with Christianity today. Without our knowledge and without actually us being responsible. Maybe what we are seeing is the blending of these two. And friends, right now we want to turn to the true God. Amen? Amen. But we have allowed truth to be mixed with tradition. Satan has mixed error with the Word of God. And what happens when we follow tradition mixed with the Word of God is that we find ourselves ultimately in places that we don't intend to be Amen. spiritually. There's a fascinating story of a, of a woman who was 62 years old from Great Britain. She had every intention of spending a wonderful vacation in Granada in Spain. She'd been looking forward to that for quite some time, so she got on the plane and she was flying to Granada, or so she thought. She said to the lady next to her, I cannot wait to get to Spain. It's going to be so wonderful. And the lady said, Spain? You're on the wrong plane if you want to get to Spain. 
So she contacted the flight attendant and said, this lady thinks that she's going to Spain. Can you help her out? <laughs> and there was some smiles there because uh, there was a little bit of embarrassment because she wasn't going to Granada in Spain at all. That plane was headed to Granada in the Caribbean. She was sincere, friends. She was excitedly looking forward to a wonderful vacation, but she was headed in the wrong direction. And do you know what she did when she got to her destination? She spoke to the airline, and she got it all sorted out, and she got on a plane getting back to where she wanted to go in Spain, friends. In her sincerity, she thought that she was going to Granada when, in fact, she was really going to Granada. I believe that there are a lot of sincere believers in Jesus today who think that they're headed for Granada, but because of the traditions that have slipped their way into the Christian churches, they've discovered that they're actually headed towards Granada. So what will you do about that, friends? That's the question in these, in, in these last days. Jesus gives us the gracious invitation. He says, come out of her, my people. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He knows each and every one of us. He knows all the hairs that are on our head. He knows what makes us tick. He knows the things that we struggle with. Amen. And Jesus said this in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Friends, are you hearing the voice of Jesus tonight? Have you heard Amen. the voice of Jesus throughout our seminar calling to you, saying, come out of her, my people? Amen. Friends, God wants to call each of us out of Babylon. And maybe there's some of us who, who we don't think that we're in Babylon, but friends, maybe there is some Babylon in us. And friends, God wants to call that out of us as well. Remember, God is attempting to guide his people in these last days. Revelation 14, 12 describes God's last day people in this, in this way. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen. Friends, God wants each and every one of us to be a part of that group at the end of time. Amen. We are close to the finish line here in earth's history. We are getting nearer and nearer to the return of Christ. And God wants you to be among those people that hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servants. How many of you want to hear those words when Jesus comes again? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Let us pray together as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen tonight, Lord, that there are two women in Bible prophecy. There is a pure woman and there is a harlot woman, Lord, the system of Babylon. And Lord, we believe that you are calling us out of Babylon, Lord, out of spiritual confusion in these last days, Lord, away from the traditions of men and into the teachings of Christ, the doctrines of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to make that stand for you, Lord, to be faithful to you in these last days, Lord, when every wind of doctrine is blowing in our world, Lord. Every wind of doctrine is blowing, trying to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. So Lord, help us to be good students of your word. Lord, help us to understand the truths for this time. Lord, help us to see that your Sabbath is beautiful and lovely. And help us, Lord, to know how to share that with those that don't know about it. Lord, help us to have mercy and compassion upon them. Help us, Lord, to, to, to put ourselves in the shoes of, of others, Lord, that are out there confused, not knowing which way to turn. Lord, help us to, 
to do what we can to make an impact in our sphere of influence, Lord. Lord, each one of us has a sphere of influence, Lord, that, that we know people, Lord, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that we can have an impact on for you. We pray that you would help us to have a positive, Christ-like example, Lord, that they can follow, Lord, an example that points people to you in these last days. Father, help us, Lord, to follow the narrow path that leads to life. Lord, there is a broad way that leads to destruction, the Bible says, but we want to be on that narrow path that leads to life and leads to you, Father. Help us to stay and to walk on that narrow way, Lord, is our prayer. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen.